Okay, so if you want to mute your sound, that'll that'll help. Um, and you can have your camera on or off. I don't care. Sometimes if, you, if people keep their camera off while while we're doing this part, it uh, stops your band. It keeps your bandwidth flowing. I don't know your bandwidth. I always talk about that. I've got the the fastest, but still. As we've all noticed in the lockdown kind of thing going on with everybody being more online, you know, this time last year before the lockdown really got started, I never had trouble with my internet locking up. But even I'm at the one level below a trunk line and I still lock up every once in a while. So it can it, it can happen. Somebody put something in the chat. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and if you keep your cam camera off, it stops it from clicking around. Um, so let's get started. So PTSD and COVID stress. Today's a kind of an overview, kind of fun. It's going to be a 10, as my friend Billy would say, a look from like a 20,000 foot altitude about something we're going to be talking about. Uh, and again, my contact info, I always tell my people, if you're a, a trainer, a speaker of any kind, whenever you do a a thing that you're recording because even though you control the recording you never know where the recording may end up so always put your contact info in there in case someone wants to get with you the nfnlp drwillhorton.com uh dr will at real nlp is my twitter um instagram dr will horton uh i probably always forget my facebook is but i'm easy to find and i'm about starting tomorrow i'm really going to launch my um TikTok channel. That's going to be fun. Trying to do something a little different on that. And on the TikTok thing, it's all going to be about addiction. Uh, and as, as always, one of my favorite saying, the only easy day was yesterday. Right. So again, as we always get started, I always start with what can I learn new today? Ask yourself these questions. What can I learn new today? And if you learn something you already know, what can you learn differently about it? Is there a different application? Is there a different mindset? How can I apply this information? both personally and professionally, you know, both personally and professionally. And how can, I, how can I enjoy this class? How can I just have some fun? Because when you're having fun, it loosens up your neurology and you actually learn more. So we're gonna talk a little bit about kind of a 20,000 foot overview as uh, our friend Captain Billy would say, as from the work of uh, Dr. Stephen Forges and many others, to me that the field of polyvagal uh, Dr. Porges started it or kind of came up with it. And it's kind of kind of morphed out. Reminds me of like NLP, right? It was, they they give a lot of credit to Bandler and Brender and they were the two drivers, but there were six or seven people in that group. Um, Stephen Connie, Ray Andreas, Charles Faulkner, um, David Gordon, I mean, the list goes on. So, and the polyvagal theory, if you will, is kind of morphed and changed and uh, it's just different. But it basically boils down that trauma is a big deal. It impacts every area of your life, right? It impacts every area of your life. Um, relationships, health, happiness, even your career. We tend to associate trauma with big things that happen to us. And if you, even if you think of yourself as someone that hasn't experienced, hasn't been traumatized, you probably have some level of trauma held in your body. That's kind of what, what we're going to focus on. Not only is modern life inherently traumatizing, traumatizing uh, because of the fast pace that doesn't allow you the necessary time and space to discharge stress and trauma, 
And that's what's going on right now. And that's what I, I think is fascinating about what we're doing when we're doing it. And now, of course, you add COVID, the lockdown, money issues, uh, everything that goes with what, what we're going through now. And again, an overlook of polyvagal, a new way to look at trauma. Um, and again, this is just kind of a brief overview. There's a lot of, you, you can get really detailed. It's like a lot of things. Um, but basically, it's when the old ways do not work. And so what we're going to be doing today is talking about that. A little bit of an overview of polyvagal. If you're familiar with it, this might be a little different. Um, if you're not, it's just kind of fascinating. Uh, and then how to unwind that stored trauma that people have, right? And why this stops you from success. And then we're going to do an experiment. Yay! Right? So let me click over here, and here we go. And... I always start with the way I talk about it. Let's start with the classical medical model, right? And basically, eventually this will be in the, in the new manual I provide. I'm gonna give you the old PTSD manual and I'm putting together a new one. My wife's always yelling at me, but other people know how I work is I, if I'm updating something, I update it <clears throat> and then I rewrite the manual backwards. I, I reverse engineer it after I after I put it together because I don't quite know which way it's going to go. Good question, though. Thank you for the question. But let's start with the classical medical model. And that classical medical model separates the mind and body. And they look at the body as a machine. It's a thing, you know, and that the mind is separate. And they work on fixing the machine, surgery, drugs, kind of thinking the mind will follow, or basically sometimes the mind, the emotions are irrelevant. I will say we're seeing that in the COVID thing right now. Um, uh, but, you know, with, with them saying, it's all about keeping the body alive or keeping the body safe. They're not equating any kind of psychological health with this, you know? You know, why should grandma being locked up in a nursing home that hasn't seen her family in a year be worried about anything? There's always tomorrow, right? And so it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting. Um, but it's the, it, it's the classical medical model, right? It deals with symptoms, not the causes. And logic is paramount. Logic is paramount, right? Assuming people are logical, <laughs> right? Um and don't get me wrong, this is like the classic Western medical model. And, and as, as, as I've heard people say, if I'm in a car wreck, if I'm on a battlefield, I have a gunshot wound, I would like a Western trained uh, medis, medical doctor at that moment just to, to help me, right? But they may not be able to keep you healthy very long, right? Um, so anyway, what I, let's jump into what I call the three minds. You have three minds. Um, you know, most people just talk about the classic mind-brain, you know, but what if, but I like to think that the mind is in the body, you know, and that it's an evolutionary process. We're going through evolutionary processes. You know, we talk about the bicameral mind, that's the, you know, conscious, subconscious, but I, I think there's a tricameral mind. Your mind is of three levels, the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the higher primate or your social brain, right? Each one, um, has its own thing, right? 
And basically the vagus nerve is the, which is where the vagal polyvagal theory comes from is from the vagus nerve. Uh, and there's a lot of action going on in the vagus nerve, kind of like in Las Vegas, there's usually a lot of action. Bad joke, it's all I got. Um, but your, your vagus nerve uh, upregulates and downregulates um, a lot of things, right? It upregulates and downregulates uh, your system. Right, and it, it 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 works with every part of the body. Right, we're going to go into this a little bit more detail, but basically, you know, it comes out back by the brainstem, goes breaks behind there, and goes into two areas. You know, uh, the vagus nerve, and if you look at it, this is kind of like a little bit of an overview. If you've ever done uh, EFT, you know, uh, emotional freedom, I like. A TFT thought freedom technique. And if you think about where some of the tapping places are, if you look at this, you tap above the eyebrow the way that it said, the way I, it was taught by um, in the thought field therapy, it, it actually aligns with some of the, uh, with the, with where the vagus nerve is flowing in the body, right? It's kind of interesting, you know, down to the uh, collarbone part. It's kind of, it's kind of cool. Kind of cool. This is just an overview, right? But the highest level brain is your social engagement, right? And the higher primate brain, which is actually in your prefrontal cortex, uh, it's our social brain, the ventral vagal so social engagement part of your brain, right? It's a new nervous system. It's only about 200 million years old, 100 to 200 million years old, right? And it's the part of your brain that reads people, faces, posture, are people friends or foes? We are social in creatures. We need social engagement. And it's all about the social engagement brain is, can I feel safe? You know, in NLP, we talk a lot about the reticular activating system and all motivational speakers speak of it now about how, you know, it's, it, it, it will find what you're looking for in the universe. If you're looking at a new car and you like a certain kind of car, you'll see that car everywhere. That's your reticular activating system. Its actual job is to keep your butt alive. It's to look for threats. It's to hear threats. It's your nervous system to look for existential threats. And that's when we talk about rapport, you know, really all people prefer others resembling them is my, my definition of rapport. Um, oh yeah, Billy Schilling points out. Well, We'll put that, yeah, put, keep that, I'll, I'll publish the chat later, maybe, right? Yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff on the uh, uh, tricameal brain. But rapport um, was do, is developed parts of our reticular activating system, again, to look for friend or foe. Can I trust you? Can I feel safe, right? Because again, humans do not do well. We do not do well in the wild by ourselves, right? Uh, we're social creatures. We do well in families, tribes, groups, gangs, whatever we want to call it, right? And the ventral vagal is a place where we're present with ourselves when we're in this part of our brain. We're present with other people. We're in the now moment. We feel safe, secure, and generally pretty good. Generally, it's a happy place. When you're there, it's a happy place, right? Because to stay here, you have to have no perceived overt threats going on, right? And then, and then we jump into the sympathetic activation, the mammalian brain, right? Um, 
the state of mobilization. It's quick to react, to get to keep you alive, move fast. You know, if you ever seen a, a startled cat or a dog, they jump, right? Uh, you see them move quick. It's it's a quick state of mobilization, right? And it's fight or flight, and you need this for action, right? Your sympathetic activation happens; it kicks in. And it's not always bad. You need it for you need a little bit of it to take action for anything, to get out of bed in the morning, to go get that cup of coffee, to 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 go to work, to do whatever it is. You need a little bit of it, right? It's closely correlated with tension, feeling chaotic, frenzied, or anxiety if it gets too high, right? And if you're bouncing between your sympathetic and your social engagement brain, you know you'll you'll activate a little bit, but you're still somewhat comfortable, right? This part of our brain, when you really drop into it, if you drop into true fight or flight, is about 400 million years old from, I don't know where they get the numbers, but I trust the researchers, right? Uh, so it's an old part of our brain, right? And again, it's there to keep you alive, right? You can train it like, like you could train a, <clears throat> an animal, right? But when you're really in it and you, and you don't drop into the social um, part of your brain, there's a lot of muscle tension. You can't relax. You can't stretch. You know, if you're in this part of your brain, one test would be is if you try to stretch and let's say you're going to do stretches every day for a week. After a few days, you should be getting a little looser. You like your hand, whatever you're stretching, your hamstring, your hips, your glutes, whatever you're stretching. <clears throat> but if every time you stretch, it feels like the first time you stretch or as soon as you've stretched, or you go get a massage and everything's loose and you're like, ah, I feel good. And then <clears throat> within a little bit of time, everything's tense again, right? Because your mind, your body's on high alert. This is beyond your conscious mind. This is there to keep you alive. <clears throat> and if you stay here, there's lots of discomfort, pain, and tension, right? And so, but in, in the perfect world, you're going from this back to your so, so, you know, getting socially, uh, your social brain where you're with other people, where you can decompress, where you can relax, you know, you come home from work and you're in that sympathetic activation from work and driving and da, <clears throat> da, da, da. Then you get home and you're with your tribe, your family, <sighs> you can relax, right? And that means you're going back into your, into your <clears throat> social brain so you can decompress. So that's sympathetic activation. And then you have your dorsal branch of your vagus nerve, which goes down your back, like dorsal, like a dorsal spine, right? Goes, it goes down the back, the others go down kind of the front. It's the reptilian brain. It's the deepest part of your brain, 500 million years old. It's the freeze response, right? It's a place of immobilization. When you're totally into it, you're frozen. You can't move, right? Frozen in fear. Um, that's why when police officers arrive on a on a on a traumatic scene, a lot of times people are stuck. They literally have to move them, right? Uh, but uh, you don't have to. If, but if you don't enter into it all the way, but if you're partially there, <clears throat> you're still immobilized. You're you 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 feel stuck. You don't have the ability to take action. You know, if you're you get strong feelings of lethargy, despondency inability to self-motivate, a feeling of helplessness. And then it'll bounce back to your conscious mind and you'll feel shame for a lack of feeling capable, a lack of feeling any agency or control over your life, right? 
Why can't I get mobilized? Why can't I get activated? What's wrong with me? You know, other people seem to be doing okay, right? So you're constantly going between all these different levels of your brain, right? This is the polyvagal theory. Because in the old model of stress, in the old model of stress, there were basically you were on or off. It was like a, 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 a an analog, you know, it was like an analog switch. It was on or off. There was no in between. Either you're stressed or you're not stressed, right? And now we begin to know that there's different levels of stress. Go back to this, you know, social engagement, you're calm, but there might, let's, you're, you're with a group and you're having a lot of fun. And then suddenly you meet new people. Oh my God, your sympathetic system activates because, ooh, I need to be able to react. I need to like try to get a rapport. Are these people friendly? Are they not friendly? You're going to a new conference, a place you've never been, right? Even though it's going to be your tribe of social engagement, you'll feel a little bit of stress. Can I do it? What's going on? I'm about to give my talk at a conference. And again, even though it's my tribe, it's my social group, right? Oh my God, I'm a little bit nervous. And that could be a good thing. You know, actors, <clears throat> performers, speakers, if they're any good, they talk about, they still have butterflies, right? Uh, because that gets you motivated, gets you ready to do things, right? And But if it gets too much, you get people that like freeze right before they go to speak. I, I saw it at a conference, well, it had to be a couple of years ago now because there was only one conference last year where there were actual human beings, but the person was so scared before they got started, right? And they were almost dropping into this deep part of their dorsal branch of their vagus nerve, the reptilian brain. They, it was hard to get them to take action. And then once they started a little bit of action, they went back into sympathetic. They were still nervous. You could hear it in their voice. And then as they looked around the room, right, and they read people's faces, people are smiling. Uh, people are friendly there. They're not foes. They want you to succeed. In fact, the person that was talking first says here, people here want you to do well, right? They're here to hear you, but they want you to do well. They're not going to, you know, freak you out. So this is how our brains should work right? We're constantly going in and out, right? And again, your sympathetic nervous system, uh, when you're in fight or flight, your pupils dilate, you have increased heart weight, your, your airways kick in, right? Um, your stomach starts to shut down, if you will, because you're not going to, it's not important to digest food if you're being chased by a bear, right? Or you got to go into a fight, right? But if you stay there too long and you have food, you get upset stomach, you throw up, you get diarrhea, right? Uh, it releases glucose, um, so you have more energy. Uh, norepinephrine and epinephrine, so you have energy. It also blocks pain, uh, relaxes your bladder. When you really get into it, you may wet yourself. This, these are things that happen. Uh, you know, it, it's there to take care of you, right? So that we call, this is the old world where there's only two. If you weren't in this, then you drop back into rest and digest, they used to call it, or rest and recuperate. You, your, your pupils constricted, your, you had more saliva in your mouth because you were relaxing, your heartbeat slowed, your airways didn't open up as much so you didn't have to try to pump too much oxygen. Um, your stomach went back to normal so you could process food. Um, stimulates the gallbladder so you can, that's what stimulating that helps you to digest food in your stomach and your intestines. Uh, you, you wouldn't, you're, you're, you get normal control over your bladder and your bowels so you don't piss or, 
or crap yourself, right? And when you're relaxed, you have better uh, uh, control over if you're having sex, you know, ejaculation, orgasm, things like that. So, you know, but it, but we now know there's a sliding, you slide between these two, you know, and there's different levels. You may be a slightly in the sympathetic, but not as bad. It's that, oops, sorry, I my, told you my computer may lock a little bit. Sorry about that, right? So it's kind of interesting, all right? So let's talk about sym sympathetic activation versus shutdown, you know? So now, so now we're, uh, your sympathetic is related to that chaotic frenzied anxiety state of stress and the dorsal vagal, the deeper one that's, you know, is shut down and it's correlated with feelings of lethargy, despondency, inability to motivate, hopelessness, shame, lack of feeling capable, lack of feeling any kind of control, right? Now, from a health standpoint, your body cannot sustain any of these for prolonged periods of time. You in in the sympathetic, you've got adrenaline pumping. You got so much cortisol flowing through your system. Cortisol is a stress hormone. Uh, your heart would just explode eventually. It would burn itself out. You have no muscles. When if you've ever entered into it, as soon as it's over, you feel exhausted, even if it's a short period of time. Like you're driving and you almost have a car accident. So you're like, whoa, or it's a minor one. And, and then as soon as it's over and you know, you know, you feel exhausted, right? If you stayed in sympathetic activation all the time, you, you experience burnout. Anybody ever have that? Or, or going through it now? You're just burned out. You have nothing left to give. You're done, right? In modern life, the stresses are unrelenting. We have things that go on for years, decades even, work stress, job stress, work and job stress, excuse me, same thing. But, you know, like job stress, job insecurity, economic insecurity, uh, family issues, you know, traffic, living in big cities, the environment may not be safe, right? And of course, turn on the news, you know, it's America is a huge country with almost 350 million people. The odds of getting shot are quite low unless you're in just a couple of specific areas, but people are under the assumption that you're going to get shot because the news will show you, oh my God, there was this horrible murder on the south side of Chicago or in the Bronx or in LA, you know, or, you know, Alabama, wherever it is, I'm not picking on any place, right? So your brain starts searching for it, right? And what begins to happen is our environment does not align with the way our nervous systems were developed, right? Right? Oh, yeah. Okay. But our, our, our brains developed in a different environment, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago. It was short bursts of sympathetic activation. You're getting chased by that tiger. You had to fight for that mate. You know, your tribe went to war with another tribe, but it was, it was, they didn't last long, right? Uh, it wasn't meant to go on for weeks, months, years, decades, lifetimes, right? And we're not even getting into is a lot of this passed down epigenetically from one generation to the next. You know, we should do a thing, maybe the last day we'll talk about that. <clears throat> you know, how certain epigenetic things show up in our, in our excuse me, our genetic markers. Right? It's kind of fascinating stuff, right? 
So this is sympathetic activation, right? Excuse me. So what begins to happen, it's like we're in a pressure cooker, okay? Your sympathetic system rises, you feel hyperactivated. Your body's like, uh, it's thinking like, or it's responding like we can't sustain this. We need to put a cap on it or a lid on it, right? Because we can't sustain this for a per long period of time. Just can't, right? You may appear very calm as there's a cap put on this pressure. But if you ever know anybody, if it's not you, you, you appear calm, you're chill, maybe super chill, this person. But suddenly there could be an outburst of anger, right? An outburst of, of, I usually say anger, but it could be like they just, something happens and they just bust out crying. You know, emotional breakdown, right? So it's an outburst of anger or any strong emotion from rage to crying to, or just totally shut down. And it seems minor from the outside, but it was that it popped, the pressure cooker exploded, right? And if this goes on for too long, again, you're bouncing between that sympathetic and the, you're trying to put a cap on it to drop, but rather than go into the social situation, um, you go in more in the dorsal part. And so you're trying to put a cap on it by shutting yourself down. It impairs your digestion, in your physical recovery. Your body can't physically recover, right? Um, if Jeff Neal's on the thing, I call later, uh, you know, as a guy who trains martial arts, you know, MMA fighters, I knew when he was training me for that movie, he would always stress, you know, your downtime, your recuperation time is as important as your training time, right? And sometimes high performers overtrain. But if you stay in this where you're overtraining, which is sympathetic nervous system, and maybe you're feeling of trying to train off or burn off energy, it affects your cognitive performance and your ability to connect with other people. Right? And, and once this happens, it's like there's no way out. Right? We're relationship creatures. And so being in these stress states makes it impossible, impossible, I say, uh, to cultivate strong, powerful, even authentic kind of relationships with people. So at every level, it's affecting us, our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, our spiritual health, right? When you're in these stress states, right? And if you're in your sympathetic nervous system or your, or your dorsal vagal shutdown, so if you're hyper shut, if you're hyper thing or you're shut down, so you're almost, you know, you're locked down, you begin to look at people as threatening. Every person's a threat, right? You look at people with suspicious eye. Kind of as a side, I, I was talking to somebody about this because uh, I don't claim to be an expert, but they're saying, this is what we see. And um, when guys come back from deployments in combat, right? Everything's a, a, a threat. But we really, we also really see it in, in like first, I don't say first responders, mostly Leos, you know, law enforcement officers. They stay in the field, they begin to see everyone's a threat. If you're not, you know, if you're not in the blue line, you're outside the blue line. If you're not, and if you're outside the blue line, you're a threat, right? And so how do you think you relate? You know, how do you, and this guy was, I was reading it. I wasn't talking to him, I'll, I'll tell the truth. And 
I was listening to one of his podcasts. He goes, this is one of the problems with the police departments. They've become so cloistered, you know, they don't relate to the population anymore. And it doesn't matter their color. You know, they could be white, black, brown officers. That's irrelevant. They're blue, right? And if you're not blue, you're outside, right? But in every situation, like, let's just say it's us. And if you're in this situation and you're in this um, nervous system, sympathetic or dorsal, where suddenly because of survival, you see everyone as a threat. So how do you think you're going to relate to your partner, you know, your business colleagues, uh, strangers on the street, you know, how do you think you're going to relate to groups of people, right? They're a threat, right? And if they've been putting a cap on it, they might explode, right? Have we seen that in the last year where, you know, people are fighting and doing things? It's kind of, as I always say, fascinating or interesting, right? And what, what really, the reason it, it, it's so dangerous, in my opinion, the thing you need to heal, connection with other people, family, friends, groups, becomes fearful right? And it's why you hear guys that, that have been on a lot of deployments want to go back and deploy, even though from the outside, you're going to like, why would you want to go back into that situation? Because that's the only place they feel connection, right? Where they can let down their guard and be with their brothers and sisters in arms, right? So the, so they can't do this at home with their family. And, and you see this a lot. We'll talk about this this weekend. You know, with people that enter into this, the people you need to connect with, you can't. And that's what you need to really unwind. So it becomes this, like this, right? And then one way to notice if you're in it or you see people in it, things that should be pleasurable, hugging, you know, intimacy, just being close with people, hanging out, doing that, shaking hands, becomes a source of threat or even painful even painful, you know, don't touch me, you know, and it's just, uh, you know, uh, so I, it, it's fascinating, fascinating, right? Okay, hold on, sorry. And, and when you get into this kind of stuff, the sympathetic and especially the dorsal, when this happens, um, this isn't, about changing your beliefs or your thoughts, right? Because words don't work. Because these parts of your brain are 400, 500 million years old. They don't know language exists. You can't have a rational conversation. These, the, the feelings of, it's a feeling, it's a sense. It's a felt sense. You can't put words to it. It becomes a nervous block. So in your system, it's more like a clogged drain, right? And that's why a lot of therapies may work a little bit. It may open that drain slightly, right? And then bam, the drain closes again, right? It's like the switch goes back and the drain's plugged, right? So sometimes, even if you really don't feel like there's a thing in your life you need to be stressed about, there may be things, and maybe most things are pretty good, but you can still have stress states in your body. It's just waiting for the trigger, whatever that trigger is. And then again, if you've been capping it, and this is what we're seeing, and you haven't been given the safe space to decompress and just let go or taught how, 
because we're not taught how, you know, it's waiting for that trigger. So boom, bad things happen. And so we need to figure out ways to unwind, unwind or the, the stored stress or trauma in your body, right? And I use the term stress and trauma interchangeably because it doesn't have to be a big, again, as we talked last week, everybody's trauma is personal. You know, one person goes through something and water off duck's back. Another, it, it's a life-changing event, right? And there's no judgment there. It's just, but then it begins to happen. If you see other people go through a trauma that you've been through and they're fine and you're not, you begin to beat yourself up, right? But, and again, as we started with this, contrary to the medical model, your body's not a thing, right? Your body interacts with your environment constantly. You know, your sensory nerve cells are gathering information, visual, auditory, all this stuff about where your, bo where your body is in space, your temperature, pressure against your skin, your internal, your external uh, states, all this is going on. And it's sensing threats all the time. You know, always looking, do I need to upregulate? Do I need to downregulate? I, I had a typo there, I apologize. It's always looking for an existential threat. That's your reticular activating system's main job, right? Is to look for that tiger. And if that's not, if there's no threat, it's to look for things that bring you pleasure. Food, mate, or if you have the food, then you look for other things. Um, things that bring you pleasure, whatever it is, right? But if you're staying in those, in those deeper parts of your sympathetic and dorsal systems, again, as we said, the things that used to bring you pleasure don't bring you pleasure anymore. You know, I was talking to somebody and they were talking about how they really liked working out. They like working out, was it? But then when the lockdown happened, uh, the gyms closed where they were, like, well, everywhere. They closed here for about two months, right? And then the gyms opened. I think wherever they were, they opened this summer. And they, they're having a hell of a time getting back in the habit of going to the gym. So we're, that's why they called me. So we're talking and and they go, and I, I don't understand it, which is, which is normal, right? They go, I walk in the gym and, you know, I have to get myself going. And once I'm there, I really enjoy it. It takes me a while to get into it, but I really enjoy it. And as soon as it's over, I feel good and wonder why I didn't do it more. And then the next day when I should go back, I start looking for reasons not to go, right? And we were talking about what's this, you know, how does he feel? It's a guy most of the time, what's going on? And, you know, um, He's feeling burned out. He's feeling stressed out. He's like, there's a, there's so much pressure inside of me. Maybe he's afraid he'll explode. I don't know, right? But if he's bouncing between these levels, this makes sense to me. And again, what used to bring him stress, one of the things that used to do that would self-soothe him, like working out, doesn't work anymore, you know? Uh, and so when that's not happening, when the things that used to self-soothe soothe you, working out, meditating, uh, eating right, whatever it was, they don't bring you pleasure anymore because you're in too much of a stress state to do it. So your body says, we can't enjoy it because I need to keep you in stress. This is a body thing. It's not a mind thing. Intellectually, you know, you need to exercise, eat right, do that stuff you used to do, but your body's going, no, no, we don't have time for that. There's a threat. There's a threat. There's a threat, right? So this is what's going on. Your body or your unconscious subconscious mind is constantly doing this. But 
trauma doesn't break you like a piece of glass. You know, when a glass shatters, it's broken. You know, what trauma does or stress of any kind, especially prolonged stress, causes a shift in your nervous system, right? And if it's not processed out, if it's not released out, it gets stored up. And then when it releases, it's all, it's usually ways you don't want it to, right? And when things happen that are beyond words, you can't release them with words. That's the, that's the paradox, right? And that's one of the things, a lot of therapies just, it doesn't work. You can't talk out something you can't put words to. You can't use logic for illogical things, right? So the key in a, in a healthy, well-regulated nervous system, um, a stressful event causes a change of activation, motivates you to deal with the threat. You run away, you fight, you do what you, you get food, whatever it is you got to do, right? And, right, fighting off the attack, but then it processes itself out, right? But when it's not properly discharged from your nervous system, it can stay in your body for weeks or months or years or maybe lifetimes. And maybe we're beginning to find out intergenerationally, and, the, and, and then you stay in that subconscious threat or trauma state. And again, trauma isn't what happened to you. Trauma isn't what happened to you. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Sorry, my phone, I forgot to turn it off. Trauma isn't what happened to you. It's the dysregulated state that's a result of what happened to you, right? It's not what happened to you. It's the dysregulation that went on in your nervous system. Maybe you couldn't put words to it, right? And so your, your brain doesn't know how to store it, how to release it, how to do anything with it, right? So it's, it's, it, it's how you processed it out, right? You know, and stress and trauma form the emotional roots of pain and tension in your body. Unresolved trauma and emo are, are basically emotional scars in your body, right? Because it's constantly shifting your brain into survival state. What really post-traumatic stress disorder is or acute stress disorder, <clears throat> right now we're in acute, a lot of us are in acute stress disorder or the COVID stress response. And it, it's affecting how you perceive the entire world, right? And my example for that, those that were on before I got started, when I was talking about the rodeo and I posted, you know, picture of a bunch of people there and you can see all these people, no mask, everybody's doing this. It triggered other people. And part of that was a social experiment because why should they feel threatened in different parts of the country? If you're not in the middle of Florida, which is where Arcadia is, it's literally in the middle of Florida, right? What, right? But their brain was in survival state. They see everything as a threat. These people in Florida doing this is a threat to them. And then they can rash, then their higher mind will kick in to rationalize this feeling of threat, right? And your health suffers as will your mood and your mental outlook, right? So after I posted that and I got the response, I thought I would get, I said, yep, people are floating around in this constant stress state, right? And everything's a threat. You're a threat. This is a threat. You know, people, we should make everyone get the vaccine, right? Because Somehow you're you're a threat to me, right? Even though the vaccine works, technically, if it worked like most vaccines, it means I'm vaccinated to getting the disease. But you know, hey, 
you know, but again, this is where it's that, it's that paradox of what begins to happen. Your health suffers, right? Your mood, your mental outlook. And if you live in a state of constant threat, it's impossible to really feel love and connection with other people, right? So it, it, it's hard or almost impossible, right? And if you start feeling love or connection with other people, you may, you may end it because that's too painful, right? I don't want people, I don't want to love someone and I don't want them to love me. That's painful, right? And so, you know, it depends when the stress happened and all this other stuff, but basically what begins to happen, it's like you're just going through the motion. You may, you may be quite high performing at work or in other areas. You're making sure stuff gets done, but you're never truly present in life. You ever know somebody like that? They're there, they get stuff done. Maybe they're successful, right? They're, it's like they're, they're all not there, right? And when it gets, one way to look at it, it's, it's like you become a splintered soul, you know? Uh, it's like the trauma zombifies you. You're a zombie. You feel like a zombie. Ever, and some of us have felt like that in the last year, right? And of course, made famous in uh, uh, PTSD from the military. And that is the look, that thousand yard stare that guys get and girls after a traumatic experience. You know, it's like their eyes are lifeless. They're staring out, you know. Um, they're in, you know, they, in World War II, they call it shell shock, right? Uh, forgot what they called it in World War I. Um, now it's post-traumatic stress disorder, but still it's that thousand yard stare. Because again, you're going through the motion. And that's what happens when you first get back while you're still in, in some kind of trauma or you go through a trauma, a car wreck, a, 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 a traumatic death of a loved one, all this stuff going on. You're making sure stuff gets done, but you're not fully present in your life. Are anybody experiencing that right now? And maybe you or other people around you with everything going on. It's like you're a splintered soul. And, and maybe you see, I see people with the thousand yard stare, right? You know, and to do, to, to fix this, you have to open your mind and you have to open your heart. And people going through it say the hard part is opening your heart and your mind, right? But it, what's kind of interesting, a lot of the mo modern uh, uh, body-based trauma healing things uh, coming from neuroscience, neuroplasticity studies, and neurobiology, all that other stuff, they actually kind of mirror shamanic healing traditions for how people recovered a splintered soul or a shattered soul or re reclaiming your broken heart, you know, how to get parts of those back to you. Because, and we'll go over that this weekend, a lot of your current classical trauma healing methods, which is in your, uh, which, is, which was in that PTSD, um, yeah, Billy Schilling, it was shell shock, World War II, battle fatigue, uh, and now it's called PTSD. Um, <clears throat> So most of the current classical trauma healing methods, and most people are always, you know, <clears throat> when you meet therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical doctors, a lot of them, they're always a little bit behind, I don't say behind the curve, but when were they trained versus what's going on now? <clears throat> Do they stay current with all the current things? Um, but it seems like a lot of them still try to 
focus on intro intellectualizing or putting words going over your memories, re, 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 revisiting the memories in a new way, which is what we do with NLP. If it's not a deep trauma, it may work. But when it doesn't work, that lets you know it's dropped down deeper into your nervous system, right? So, you know, you can't intellectualize it, right? Because if you're in that true trauma or if they're in that state while you're doing it, um, it communicates a lack of safety to your brain. You can't process out a trauma or a stressor if you're in the stressor because your brain's saying, I'm not safe to be here. You may go through the motions. You may do the things you're supposed to do, but it's not working, right? And it can happen as a result of physical trauma and accident, combat, uh, emotional things like domestic violence, abuse, you know, grief, loss of a loved one, uh, not having your needs met as a child. We, we, don't, we don't stress on that enough. And a lot of those, some of these I call slow trauma. Um, it's the kind of trauma that results not from just one moment in time, but an ongoing, never-ending chronic stress, right? Like guys that are in combat or deployed for long periods of time, you know, it's not always stress, but it's like little stress builds on little stress, builds on little stress, builds on little stress, builds on little stress, right? Uh, so it's the never-ending chronic stress. And it says there, COVID anyone? You know, it's like, hey, you know, you know, 14 days to flatten the curve. You know, that's what we heard in, I think it was March uh, 24th of last year, just 14 days to flatten the curve. Um, and then there's the, you know, right? So it's just something to think about, but you simply cannot tell your body you're safe, right? And, and people that are in it, this is where they disconnect like from hypnotists and NLPers and, and traditional therapists, you know, this is a safe space, it's okay. They don't feel safe, right? And depending on the kind of trauma they're going through, they go through the motions and they'll intellectualize it. I've seen a lot of therapists do this. They'll intellectualize it, right? Because they don't want to drop into their body, right? They'll drop if they, they're afraid of that, right? And if you stay there, if, if you stay in this, it breaks down to resist, it breaks down your resistance, right? Physical resistance, emotional, psychological, right? So, Excuse me. Boom. So how do we release this, right? So what do we need to do in order to discharge this trauma is restore a felt sense of safety to your body. And this cannot come from your brain. It cannot come from words, right? You can't visualize it. Uh, you have to experience it. Your body, your body states influence your consciousness. You know, so you have to begin to tap into what you're feeling. And again, if you've been through some kind of trauma, real, imagined, whatever it is, it's hard to step into it because it's uncomfortable at first, right? Or we're not taught how to, or they use the, the way that they shouldn't. Like, okay, let's go back and revisit that memory and see yourself, you know, go through this thing, but you're safe. Maybe you need to discharge it in different ways, right? And maybe there are ways to discharge or clean out the clog in your system to discharge the trauma, bringing you out of that survival mode so you feel safe, so then maybe you can process things differently, you know? But the trauma stored in the body has to be addressed at the body level 
which means we need to speak your body's language, which is sensation. And again, it's not words, it's not pictures, it's not beliefs, but it's sensations. And a nice little argument with someone when I posted something and what they said was PTSD is a choice. PTSD is a choice. Shall I say that triggered me? <laughs> it's like, it's a choice. Uh, you know, um, so anyway, uh, those are the things we'll do, right? And the only way out is through, right? The only way out is through. You have to get out of your mind and literally come into your senses, not come to your senses, but come into your senses. Maybe our little language goes about, hey, you need to come to your senses. No, maybe you need to come into your senses, right? Sensory information that's transmitted through touch, sight, and sound primarily is how your body reads it in the environment. So it isn't a case of mind over matter, it's the opposite. It's actually the body talking to your mind. Your, mind, your body doesn't just listen to your mind, it communicates back, there's a back channel, right? As we all know about how things work, sometimes the back channel of information is more important than the, than the front channel of information. You know, your body states influence your consciousness. Your body is your mind and your mind is your body. All right. And I'm going to, we're going to come back to this. I'm going to pause it and we're going to talk. Self-sabotage may be a PS, PTSD response, right? Because if you self-sabotage in a lot of areas of your life, maybe there's a, there's a block and people talk about I'm blocked from prosperity or love or getting to the body I want or recovering from this injury, whatever it is, <clears throat> maybe it's this deep emotional, physical nervous system response. And it's just trying to keep you safe. And you're trying to process your way through it. You're saying your mantras, you're doing your, your affirmations, you're dancing naked in the moonlight, whatever you're doing, but it's not working because you've hit that clog and you sabotage your own success. So let me stop this now, stop the share for right now. All right. <clears throat> I need coffee. It was a quick mini overview of the polyvagal theory from a simplistic guy trying to make it simple to understand because it's, you know, I need GPS to find the bar. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so does, does this make sense to everybody? Because now I'm going to wing it in now. And then, oh, yeah, Billy, quit showing off, Billy. I've got that somewhere. You know. um, and that's actually a pretty, Billy put up the polyvagal theory. That's by Stephen Porges, right? Dr. Stephen Porges. It's actually pretty easy to read. I thought, I didn't think it, it gets a little deep in parts, but it's, you don't have to be a neuroscientist to get into it. Yes, Billy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, that was, uh, that was his first book. That's about a decade, uh, maybe 12 years old now. Uh, but uh, there have been uh, a couple follow-on that are specifically for uh, counselors and therapists. Um, but uh, I, I had the original. And what was that guy that he came to the guild a couple of times, Dr. 
I, uh, well, I can't uh, remember. Uh, I think I know who you're talking about. I did not spend a whole lot of time with him uh, because um, he was uh, a prior Russian military physician. And uh, given my Navy experience, um, if I talked to him very long, I had a lot of paperwork to fill out. So, but there were, yeah, but does this make sense to everybody? The, what, and was it a pretty good 20,000? Yes. yes, it was very good. Yeah. 20,000 foot overview, you know? Because yeah. like kind of what we're- It was good. What I'm driving for, or I'm driving at, what I hope to get, you do not have to be a master mechanic to drive a car. You just have to know how to drive the car, right? And if it's that bad, you go get a mechanic, you know? They, you know, I, I don't know any uh, race car drivers. I'm not, contrary to being a redneck, I'm not a NASCAR fan. You know, left turn! I wonder what's gonna happen. Left turn! Right? Uh, and by the way, you all know where, where, where NASCAR got started? Does anybody know this? Here's an aside, this is a confusion technique. Does anybody know how NASCAR got started? Moonshiners outrunning revenuers in the South. Building up cars that had to be street legal or look street legal so they can run moonshine. So I, I guess you could say NASCAR is a red squirrel, but it works to get people to relax. All right. Uh, hey, Billy. Anyway, uh, so. But going back to the polyvagal theory, does this make sense of why you can't process out up here what's going on down here, right? And it's the disconnect and, you know, and, and how do we approach it? What can we do with it? Um, yes, Miss Galaxy S10, it's, it's Carrie. I can see her, she's on her cell phone. Unmute, you're muted. There we go. Okay, I'm here. <laughs> my ugh, my tech world today is just falling apart. Okay, I have a question in regard to um, processing the trauma, and I guess the best way to ask it is: What if someone, or is it possible that someone in Specifically, I'm thinking about young kids who are abused, um, not necessarily sexually, but maybe just, you know, neglect or, uh, you know, well, abused in some way, and they stay, they'll still protect their parents. Do they know they're traumatized? Or is it just the body? Because they're young, they don't have language to know what trauma means or abuse means. So does the body interpret and that's why they still react certain ways? Because they don't know that's their normal life. Yeah, it's not pleasant, but. Yeah, and you'll go back. They, yeah, you'll go back to what's normal. Um, right. Yeah, and you can't put, again, if you don't have words, you can't put words to it. So, so if you're pre or the experience is beyond words, that's always one of my favorites. How do you describe it? Yeah. There's no way to describe it. 
So then when you try to describe it, there's a disconnect because it's a felt sense. Maybe it's wherever it is, it's a felt sense. So even if you're working with a child, this takes me back to my social work days. And now I'm looking at it differently. Um, and a child doesn't have that kind of vocabulary. I guess that's why they use puppets and stuff. If you're trying to get them to work through a sensation, all and they don't have the understanding, then that's why we bring in puppets or we try and find it a way on their level to get them through it because they don't have that vocabulary. I'm gonna answer this the best way I can. I don't have a clue. Okay. Because I don't That's, work with kids. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's a whole specialty that, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't now, but I did. And, right. So well, I'm just looking at it, yeah. Well, this is Bruce. And Dr. Cheryl Pratt, who you may remember, yeah. was a specialist in this area of early childhood. Okay. And, um, there's a book uh, by the title, The Body Keeps Score. Oh, I yes, I yes. And it talks about how physical changes happen in response to traumatic experience, both uh, prenatally with substance abuse, fetal alcohol syndrome, as well as in the early years before language skills develop. And what you can't express verbally because you don't have the skills shows up physically. So there are all kinds of markers. Uh, the facial structure changes. There's all kinds of uh, uh, epigenetic things that happen in response to the external abuse. Hope that helps. Yeah, and, and yes, it doesn't Thank have you. to be overt what we would think of as abuse. Just not having your needs met as, met as a child. There's a whole or generation that- substances introduced into your body uh, either environmentally or by being part of the, uh, uh, the pregnancy experience. All of that shows up. Well, and, and a lot of us on this call are old enough that when our, parent, when our mothers were pregnant, they might've smoked and drank. Yep. And like, you know, they weren't shunned in public for a pregnant woman smoking. You know, like it might might happen now. Um, so there's all those things going on, right? And also too, there's all gen, uh, there was a long time where people talked about, you know, you gotta let a baby cry it out. Gotta let baby or toddler cry it out. Yeah. You know, and w one of the people, and again, I don't read a lot about the, the, the kids, but does that start the, the cycle of you're never going to get your needs met anyway, so don't even ask. Don't cry. Don't ask because no one's going to be there. You're, you can lay in that crib for hours and cry, right? No one comes there. So it's, even at that little tiny developmental stage, it starts a process. You know? I wonder if that might be the cause of some of the autism we find. Yeah, or like you say, or if your mother or your father is a substance abuser and it, they maybe they don't overtly abuse you, 
but they're drunk and passed out. Right. And they can't respond to you. Yeah. Or they're caught, they're caught up in their own trauma. They don't have time for your trauma. They got their trauma. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as we like to think life's a Hallmark movie, <laughs> you know, and everything revolves around love and children, maybe it's not that way. You know, so. A lot of the, uh, the new epigenetic studies are, are providing a lot of evidence. It's not conclusive yet, but even emotional trauma has, uh, has been reflected. Go ahead, Miss Janice. Well, I, I, I believe that the body does speak to you in dreams because I can tell you that a dream saved my life. And it was very specific, the dream. It uh, showed me that my arm had been cut off by the elbow and that I was screaming at the doctor that I told him to check my arm uh, and now look at what happened. And the next day I called the doctor and I went to see him. And I guess he was just, uh, you know, kind of, because my conviction was so strong. He checked my arm. I had a tumor in my arm, the size of a a green grape. And uh, so I do believe that the body does communicate because of my experience. I have to believe that because it was just out of the blue. As a matter of fact, when I had that dream, I had just come back from my physical checkup and I I went back the the next day and there was this tumor. He didn't know it, I didn't know it, but it created a picture and an experience for me. So I think it's, you know, checking the systems, maybe like an astronaut checks it and creating a story for you. Yeah, well, and it's like, there's some thought, well, they always say like, you know, what's the gateway to addiction, you know? You know, and, uh, is it like social drinking? Is it your parents drinking? Is it this? And I do know a lot of the thought is trauma is the gateway to addiction because you have some kind of thing going on inside. You cannot sell soup, right? So you'll, you'll anesthetize it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it works for a while. It may work for a while, you know, but it may not. So cool stuff work with the client's dreams in your ptsd work that you do me no okay well i do know they do say one of the things about a marker of ptsd is you don't have dreams you don't remember any of your dreams oh okay because your subconscious will not let them come out wow and i you know and i i i I have worked with a few people with night terrors right that are trauma related and uh, so it's interesting stuff. Yeah. Any other comments? Well, uh, that being said, you're talking adults here, but if you have small children, they can't even they can't even speak up about my arm. I had a dream about my arm. They wouldn't relate to that. Correct. Well, if you shared, if you were in the practice of sharing dreams with children, not analyzing them, but 
if they were able to speak about their dreams as a parent, you would have access to that because you. Yeah, but then they, they wouldn't be abused. I'm, I'm talking about children whose needs aren't met. Oh, well, which usually means they, they don't get the time of day from their parents. Right. No, I understand that. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, uh, that's another topic. But I was just yeah. curious about, you know, um, how the body might speak to you, not in a conscious level, obviously, that you can't heal. It has to be through the senses, but through pictures and only on a very deep subconscious level, if if, like you say, they dream, because I didn't know they didn't dream at PTSD. That's interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, Will, if I can add something. Sure. Um, so I did a lot of, uh, I worked with, with teenagers, um, usually 12, and, 12 to 18 for about 10 years. And I think what you had said a little while back, um, that a lot of kids don't identify it because they don't have a contrast the parent right. that neglects them is normal so yeah. the contrast usually doesn't come for girls around age 14 when they have the ability to have insight so it develops pretty early in girls boys is usually 16 to 17 in my ah. experience so a lot of times it goes unrecognized unless they have a contrast so that could be a therapist that could be a really good coach football coach hockey coach and they start to see healthy and then they start to ask questions, but it's usually in mid-teen development before they actually start to ask the question, because otherwise it's just they're normal. And yeah. it would, you know, Will talked about the importance of pack, especially in PTSD. You don't want to alienate yourself from your pack, even if your pack is dysfunctional. So it poses yeah. a threat. Now in healthy yeah. adolescents, there's also distancing from parents, which is normal, but they don't want to terminate the relationship with the parent because it presents a threat. So it's usually not till that, what I noticed till late teens where they started, unless they were identified early by a school, by a teacher and got into the system early, that it was identified that there's something wrong. Hopefully it was that language rather than you're broken, which is often used. <laughs> like you're broken. Uh, you got What's this wrong, wrong with you? The, yeah. You got this wrong with you or that wrong with you. Instead of just recognizing that there's, there could be something wrong. Uh, because again, for the kid to, to start to recognize that while my environment may be not healthy, they don't really have the option at 12 years old to pack their bag and leave. No. So sometimes it's forced by them, like through child, children protection agencies. So again, the awareness of contrast can happen that way. I mean, in my work with, P, with, with uh, teens, I would usually say to the teen, and to the parent that teens are referred to me by the P's, which is parents, principals, and probation. It's never personal. It's usually not a teen that goes, I, I smoke a little bit too much drugs and I need some help. It's usually somebody else's idea that it's a problem, yeah. which again, for, for most yeah. of my clients was parents, probation, and parole. That's mm -hmm. how they got to me. Now, my right. job was to get them to trust me. Again, the importance of group. If I got rapport and got them to trust me, then we would go somewhere. But sometimes mm -hmm. that was the hard work. And really the, the majority of the work in mental health and, and addiction, because I, I was the rep for my province around that is the importance of building rapport is more important than any modality that you use. Because people focus on cognitive behavioral or whatever modality. And it's like the modalities don't work because if you don't have rapport, you don't have anything. Right. Nothing, nothing will work. 
especially with youth populations and the elderly. They're the two most stigmatized. And you can, Will was saying that at the beginning today, that we put people in retirement homes and, okay, well, we can't see you and good luck with that. And they should all be okay, right? <laughs> well, no. And it's the same thing with youth nowadays, that everything is behind a computer and they're distanced from everybody. So um, well, it's, it's usually not till the contrast comes. In yeah, my, again, that's, that's an opinion, not based on research. It's just me doing work for 10 years. Well, and, and you bring up the thing about are, are, were they brought up in an environment where they feel safe to question or was that shut down? And also, how many of us were brought up in families? What happens in the family stays in the family. Oh. Right. So even talking to a therapist poses a threat. Especially if you're Italian. <laughs> or Irish. Or hillbilly. Or Jewish. <laughs> or French. Or joy, We don't share. Keep it in the family. What will they think? Mm -hmm. So basically, everyone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If I, yeah. I worked over 20 years, 20 years uh, in youth services where, uh, like Gilles was saying, it's like where kids were taken out of the families and brought to youth centers and so on. So I worked with them and uh, they are uh, aware that there's something wrong. They can't necessarily uh, talk about it and uh, a lot. It depends what age group. I know I worked in both six to twelve and twelve to eighteen. Twelve to eighteen, there's a lot more uh, inter, in, inter rationalizing or in, you know understanding going on. Mm -hmm. But six to twelve, uh, one of the best right. ways yeah. it, it was more about you know we're talking dreams, but uh, it, it wasn't dreams. It's, it's drawing. You know, it's like they can't say it, but they were they were able to draw something and then explain the drawing to me. And that's where exactly, we, exactly that way. That's that's where we were able to kind of process some some of the you know it's like the abuse or or the trauma that they've been through, and even though they had been through uh, major trauma and they knew that the parents were the shits, uh, they could say that the parents were bastards, but I couldn't. Right. right? You know, if I said yeah. anything against the parents, they get they just kind of riled up and they close the door, and I wouldn't. Be, it, it would take me forever to kind of re recreate the rapport. You know, but yeah, you know, it's like th there's different ways with kids to to deal with uh, with trauma, and uh, it works really well. Also. Yeah, one way that I use that worked really well, kind of in line with what Pierre was saying, is I use Plato and would play with them and just say, I want you to create a representation of the different members of your family. And then would use a physical page as the core environment. And I would say, you're in the middle. Now, you know, if, if dad, I know one dad had a, a cell phone or created a little cell phone. I said, how close are you to dad in proximity? Because the child's in the middle. And you really can understand the family dynamics and the ones that they're distanced from. Like I remember with this kid, big sister was like at the far corner of the page. And it's because she was the star and all the focus and attention went to her. But we did that through play, like people were talking about play therapy. Mm -hmm. I just played along with them and, and the level of sharing that was, because it didn't feel like therapy to the kid. And of course, everybody loves playing with Play-Doh. So I would play along with them and make my own little caricatures and, and we'd just kind of laugh and have fun. But for them, it was better than trying to, well, explain to me what your relationship to your mother is, because that's an adult kind of language and they just, I don't know, 
yeah they're all right I guess. I mean, again, I don't know is most, most important if you have a kid that's very kinesthetic, I don't know is actually appropriate language because they're having a hodgepodge of sorting emotions that are based in body. So they can't really find words. Yeah, and what, what I, the, the words I would use is tell me the story of your drawing or tell yeah. me the story of your family. And, and they're great storytellers. You know, yeah. it's like, it just kind of comes out. And, and it, they tell you everything that you need to know. <laughs> you know just, just like to let people know. Yeah. Cool. Oh, I, I defer to people about kids. I screwed up one. That was enough. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Seems <laughs> Will, can I add something? Sure. Uh, just uh, in conversation with Dr. Pratt, in 1992, she approached Stephen Porges to assist in some research about heart rate variability as it relates to the vagus nerve system. And for children who don't have language skills, which are sufficient to express the trauma or the, uh, or the contrast or don't have contrast yet, their body can speak to the issue by, by using a biofeedback type device you can see when the body is reacting to the different things that the child experienced. So it's, it, instead of trying to guess or, or play therapy is great once the children have sufficient language skills, but prior to that point, you can get an idea if the child has been traumatized either by substances, as in the case of fetal alcohol, or other types of trauma, you know, simply by contrasting their heart rate variability with the normal heart rate variability for that age and gender of the child. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's take about a five minute break. What time is it? Yeah, about five minutes, maybe seven. I'm a government worker, 8.5. <laughs> Be back in a few minutes. I'll put pause. All right. So PTSD and self-sabotage, right? May is some of the self-sabotage. It may be a PTSD response, you know, trying to keep you safe. As we just heard, part of that disconnecting from your feelings, it to me could be looked at as a, a, a self-defense mechanism because it may be painful to get into those feelings. You know, and and the feelings of hopelessness and and all, whatever it happens to be, right? And so we talk about all those things, and we have certain things. So here's an experiment, and uh, we can do it for a few days, see what happens. It's a real time trauma release program experiment, and I'll I'll uh, I'll post the. Um, this time I'll remember if I if I think of it. <laughs> I'll remember if I think of it. How's that for a double bind? Uh, to post the uh, this PowerPoint for people to look at, right? Um, but think of a block or a physical ailment, something you know um, that that we can work on, right? Uh, somebody posted. Did I do something? Did I get rid of the chat? Anyway. Um, but let's start small. So pick something we can work on. And what it is, it's four exercises that doesn't take long, a few minutes maximum, right? Uh, 
So it's basically four little exercises and a TFT, thought field therapy. It's almost exactly like um, um, EFT, except it goes back to the guy that founded it, which was Dr. Callahan. Uh, and so if you do, so today's Tuesday, so you have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. So if you do it tonight and then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if you do it in the morning and in the evening, uh, we'll see what happens, right? That's the experiment. We'll see if it shifts some of the things in your body. And again, it's four quick exercises. Uh, and I'm trying to keep it fast and effective because again, I think, especially in, in our world of self-help, self-development therapy, we have a tendency to take a very simple idea and complex the shit out of it, you know? We'll take a, you know, <laughs> the, let's do, a, let's do a gratitude exercise, you know, which three to five things a day. And then people go, I wrote for four hours. And <laughs> <laughs> so let's just keep it fast, keep it effective, right? And, it, and, and just see what happens. So again, let's think of a stuck state or an issue. And if you can, is there anywhere in your body you feel it? Is, it, is there a specific place? Or is it just a general sense? You know, it could be whatever it is, right? And as you re begin to do this, you can imagine the vagus nerve, which we looked at, which was back here. Let me, let me go show you. I meant to put it again. Imagine the vagus nerve opening up just in your mind. I mean, that part, you know, as we do this little exercise, you can imagine like if there's a, today we had, to, I had to unclog the kitchen drain. So I was thinking about this, right? Cause it backed up, shit was all over, you know, it's, it was all over the floor. And I was thinking, yeah, it backs up. And then I remember reading somewhere, some plumber says, well, when you unclog your drain, right? If you're gonna use like a, a, a that, he suggests, you go to some of your other sinks and stuff and pour the Drano down it because the clog may move, you know? And I just remember doing that the last time I had to unclog a drain and I live in Florida with bad water. So we always got drains clogging up and I'm like, hmm, that's an interesting, and I was thinking of it today. So, so imagine the, you're opening up your vagus nerve just by doing this, right? So, here we go. And basically, it's a hill, it's it's a head tilt, eyes opposite. So I'll show you how to do it. So the easiest way to do it is boom. Okay. Um, I'm gonna turn off the screen share and then come back to it. Nope, I'll just do it this way. You can see me. So sit straight, wherever your thing you're at, and, and preferably not against the back of your chair. So sit as straight as you can. And let me tell you a quick story. How I started really thinking about this again a few months ago is because some of you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm being blessed to be getting back into acting and doing this stuff. And my wife was yelling at me and, a, and an acting teacher about I have bad posture right? I kind of slump over. And I was, I was justifying it because I'm always on the computer, right? But it's also the posture you see people when they're beaten, right? The posture of shoulders down, head down, you're just beaten, right? And so I got these back 
correction things. You know, they're not back braces. They pull your shoulders back and they lift you up. So I've been wearing these things. And the first thing I noticed, I felt fucking weird. Excuse my language. It felt weird. Shoulders back, head up, you know, it's like you have to stand when you're in a, 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 a dress uniform for a, for a military thing. Shoulders back, head up, you know, and they're yelling about you that. And I haven't done that in a while. So I felt weird. Right. And, and that made me start thinking about how your posture changes everything. And, and, and that, and then a few months or a couple months ago, when I started training for this film, I hired a personal coach. A lot of you know him, Jeff Neal, MMA guy. And he had me do this exercise, which we'll do later on. It's not part of tonight, which changes your physiology, right? And it basically goes to the thing of, there was that study that, you know, even this lady looked at blind athletes, blind athletes since birth. So they have no visual memory. And yet, even when they, when they won or they succeeded, they would raise their hands in victory. Like we would, you know, like you went around, yes, yes. So you see people do something, they do this, right? So it made her start thinking about this changes your physiology, right? If you stand there in the power of like, throw your hands up, throw your, like, yeah, like you just won, right? And could that also open up like what we'll be talking about, your vagus nerve, right? It's shifting that. So here's some other exercises to do it. That's where it started coming from. And we'll talk more about that later. So you kind of sit straight, right? And what you're going to do is you're going to take your right hand, put it on the left side of your head and tilt your head down, keeping your eyes straight. Not so much it hurts, but enough that you feel it. So you feel a little stretch. And then roll your eyes back the opposite way. So you're tilting to the right, but you're looking to the left as far as you can. Right? And just hold your eyes there for at least 15 to 20 seconds. And notice if you feel anything. Now, as you're doing this, kind of imagine the vagus nerve beginning to open up. Keep looking as far as you can. Now let your head come back to the center. Roll your eyes around one way. Roll your eyes the other way. Kind of do the figure eight. Okay. Now you're going to do the opposite. Your left hand on the right side. Tilt your head. Enough that you feel the stretch, but not so much it hurts. And then tilt your eyes the opposite way. Then your head's tilted for about 15 to 20 seconds. And sometimes when you're doing this, you begin to notice you might get a little saliva flow in your mouth. You might find yourself taking deep breaths more than normal. A few more seconds. Good, now let your head come back to the center and roll your neck around, but now do your eyes, one left, up, down, kind of like if you're doing, those of you that know EMDR, just bounce your eyes around and 
think about this stuck state you're in as you're doing this, but your vagus nerve opening up. And now we're going to kind of repeat it, except we're going to make it a little deeper, which you're going to take your right hand, put it on the left side of your head, just like we did, but then you're going to take your left hand, put it on your ribs. So you're kind of tilting, so you're kind of tilting your ribs the opposite way. And then again, tilt, go put your eyes to the opposite for about 20 seconds. Think about your vagus nerve opening up and think about whatever that stuck state is you're working on that you can't get out of, that you can't put words to. Okay, and then kind of stretch neck. Roll your eyes to the left, to the right, up, down, up, down. Now you're gonna do the opposite, same way, left, left hand, right side, right hand, left side, pull, pull it. So you're kind of stretching out your core, if you will. Roll your eyes to the opposite direction for 20 seconds. Two a half, two, you know, 30 seconds, up to a minute, I would say. Okay. Now bounce your eyes around. Now what you're going to do is you're going to take your hands, cradle your hands. And so you're holding your, your head straight and your thumbs, if you could put your thumbs in this part of your, like right under where your spine meets your skull. Put your thumbs there as you're kind of holding your head, kind of massage with your thumbs, that wherever they are on the back of your head, right there at that little curve at the back of your head, and just hold your head straight. So kind of take the pressure off your neck. Now roll your eyes, let's say to the right all the way, and massage that little part of your brain. Again, imagine your vagus nerve opening up. And whatever this problem is, don't really just think about it. It doesn't just a sense. And again, for about 20 seconds to 30 seconds. Maybe massage circular, circular, counterclockwise, clockwise. And let your head eyes come to the middle and put your eyes to the other direction all as far as you can for again about 20 seconds. And as you massage that part of your that part of your okay. Now now just hold your head straight, keep your head straight, and just bounce your eyes around like figure eights. Look all the way up, all the way down, to the left, to the right.
straight up, straight down. Cool. Now, what we're going to do is sort of a quick round of thought field therapy, short version. Uh, so you're going to tap. When you tap, you kind of, I would say, take three fingers, not just one or two, like some people do. Take three fingers and you're going to tap. Let me go back to this picture. Excuse me while I bounce around. I meant to put the picture back up, but I forgot. If you could see like right there, so it's about halfway above your eyebrow going inward. So you're going to tap like that. But what we're going to do, if you can, if you're coordinated enough, cross your hands as you do it. So you'd be tapping like that. And I don't think you really have to think of anything except that sense and your nerves opening up. Then drop down and you can see right there under your eyes, where if you're into martial arts, that's stomach five right there, right? So you're gonna tap right there. And again, if you use three or four fingers, it gets more of that activation. So you begin to see that TFT or EFT actually is tapping into the vagus nerve. And then your, what they call the collarbone there, which is right, that little spot right there on each side. And then what you're going to do is between your ring and little finger, right? There's a spot in martial arts is where you do this exercise right there. It's your heart, by the way. So tap and then bounce. Now you do like an EMDR thing where you bounce your eyes around. And then do the other. I just switch hands, then tap same spot on the other hand. Cool. So that's the experiment. Oops. And I noticed when I started doing this, first, I, I don't, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second. What I notice when I do it, I get a lot more saliva flow and my throat relaxes. Right. Then on the last day, I'll show you some cool exercise I, I learned that helps reset this system, especially for your voice. So, um, so that's the exercise. You tilt first is your head, and then your head and and like your rib cage, you kind of do both sides. Doom, doom, right? Cradle the head. Put your thumb in that whatever that soft spot right underneath your skull is. If you're into pressure points, that's gallbladder twenty, and you kind of rub there, right? As you're doing your eyes again. Around and then just do a quick eye movement release, and then a round of either, if you're into EFT or TFT, do a, do, do a round of that, so. Can I ask a question? Do we, are we focusing on the problem or anything when we're doing this, or are we just doing the motions? Yes, well, mostly thinking about your vagus nerve opening up. Okay. Thank you. And like releasing the clogged drain. 
so when you said sense uh, work, you meant like, uh, I must have misunderstood that. It's not a feeling of a sense. It's like energy sense. Is yeah. That yeah. Okay. Where do you feel the block? If you, oh, if okay. you do, not everybody does. Sometimes it's a vague, that one guy coined the term felt sense. You know, it's just like, yeah, especially if you can't put words to it. Like a knot in your stomach. Could or, be a knot in your stomach or just yeah. like something's wrong. I'll tell you, my head, I had a headache all day and that my head feels lighter already <laughs> just from doing that. Feels good. It's in 29.95 too. <laughs> all right. Let me, let me stop the share here. Boom. All right. Oh, is yeah, sometimes when you do this, you might feel a little bit upset at your stomach. Maybe you've been carrying a lot of stress. Mm. Oh. Mm. So. Hopefully things will stop going wrong, right? Well, we'll see. But you got to try it every day until Saturday. And we'll see what.